0: Hello and welcome to A Thriving Future with me, Hannah Temple. In this episode, I'm speaking to Adeeb Dada. Adeeb is an award winning environmental activist and architect. He is the founder of regenerative consultancy and architecture firm, The Other Dada, which has a mission to activate projects across architecture, living systems, and art. Based on biomimicry thinking, The Other Dada's work promotes a symbiotic relationship between nature and the built environment working with nature to develop resilient and generous cities. Through his work, Adib is also engaged in rewilding the city of Lebanon and reclaiming public space by planting native Miyawaki forests. Since 2019, he has planted over 11 forests across Lebanon, reclaiming more than 3,700 square meters of degraded land by planting them with over 10,500 trees and shrubs. As you will hear, Adib is a passionate follower, practitioner and advocate of biomimicry. He talks to us about how to use this lens to engage with the teachings of nature and also about how he is weaving these teachings across the organisation he has established in tangible ways, such as the nature of their projects, their organisational structure and working with them, but also in less tangible, more subconscious ways in terms of the mindset that the organisation seeks to embody, a mindset of humility trust openness and dynamism as adib shares he is doing all of this in an incredibly challenging context which raises the question that if he can put life at the center of his organization surely we all can Adeeb and i met doing an incredible program called the bio leadership fellowship i will include a link to this in the show notes But a huge thank you to Andres, Ella, and all of the BioLeadership Project team for creating a space where I could meet so many brilliant, inspiring people like Adib. Do check it out if it sounds interesting to you. Okay, let's get started. Hi, Adib. Welcome to A Thriving Future.
1: Hey, Anna. Thanks for having me. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Great to have you here. So I like to start all of these conversations by inviting people to share a little bit about where they are in the world.
1: Um, okay, so I'm uh, I'm based in, um, in Beirut, in uh, Lebanon. And um, so Beirut is the capital uh, city. It is, um, I don't know, so much to say. Lebanon is a very highly biodiverse country. It's a, it's a really tiny country. So it's a country of about 6 million people. Uh, really small territory, but really well-placed um, from ecological perspective. So we are blessed with, um, you know, a, a long coast and, uh, and mountains and snow. So yeah, lots of kind of different microclimates uh, within this tiny country.
0: Mm. yeah you shared a uh an amazing kind of infographic with me recently that kind of showed the difference between the percentage of the world's landmass that's occupied by lebanon versus the percentage of biodiversity and it was like mm. less than one yeah. percent landmass and over eight percent of the world's biodiversity i was really floored mm. by that
1: yeah it is i mean uh we're also like kind of geographically placed on the uh the second most important uh, migratory flyway for uh, for birds so moving across from like africa to asia and back to africa and so that's also yeah because of the geographical setup of of the country so they kind of funnel over uh they kind of funnel over lebanon so that's also like a lot of bio, a lot of biodiversity there but of course i mean i don't know if uh, your audience knows much about lebanon it's uh, failed state uh, complete collapse um, i mean over the past many years but especially over the last 2 years it's it's been a difficult um, few years definitely it's also uh, i mean the the like lebanon itself is quite is very very diverse in terms of the you know the people living here we have you know over 18 different religious sects uh, there's people you know from really like all all parts of life and so there is a cohabitation that is still relatively successful, uh, you know, when you compare it to other countries where, you know, like it's, you know, when you have more than one religion, it becomes this like big, decisive, divisive issue. And here, you know, where it's like there is a cohabitation. It's definitely created uh, lots of tension, and it's been obviously um, also um, kind of used by, you know, in these kind of geopolitical. Wars and, you know, wars by proxy and all of these things. So we're not going to get into that right now, but it's, uh, I think it's, it's also a form of like a a result of the, of the geography of the history of people moving through this country, this country having a lot of uh, resources and richness uh, in a, in a context that is uh, very scarce on resources. So we're one of the few countries here that are not yet uh, water scarce we're moving towards that because of uh, mismanagement mm. but uh, but not yet so we enjoy lots of uh, natural resources um so from snow capped mountains which feed underground aquifers uh, really beautiful like four distinct season uh, coastal areas uh, agricultural plains and all of that so we're yeah it's uh, i think it's also it's like a feature of the geography and the culture um, as well
0: yeah i think since knowing you and coming a bit more into contact with the work that you do and following you and so on. I feel like, although I knew about the situation in Lebanon in an abstract way, I've learned so much more about what it's really like to live there through what you've shared. Um, so that's been a real education to me, but could you now tell us a little bit about the organization that you're, that we're here to talk about?
1: Sure. So um so basically, like coming out of my studies, I started by studying um, architecture and I was very much interested in in this idea of green buildings and that slowly developed into understanding more and more about sustainability and uh, sustainability ratings and things like that. But it was never enough for me. So I just kept on kind of pushing uh, then through my graduate studies, looking um, uh, into living systems, um, and eventually getting into biomimicry. So kind of really, you know, that arc of kind of going beyond. So going beyond green buildings into sustainability, going beyond sustainability into biomimicry. And then, you know, eventually like going even, I mean, I wouldn't say beyond biomimicry, but but just now getting into regeneration and looking at, you know, like the built environment as, as, a, as a shared space for humans and others uh, and other organisms to thrive. So that's, you know, that's the part of the art that I'm on at the moment. And so, my, so the company that I founded um, 10 years ago, uh, a little more than 10 years ago, so it's called The Other Dada, and it basically hints to the other way of doing things. So it's the other way of approaching sustainability, the other way of approaching conventional architectural projects and conventional um, consulting projects and all of that. And so it's always looking for, you know, what is, not what is next in terms of like, okay, what is new, but it's really, it's, it's, it's always kind of pushing the boundary. And so it's always been something that um, that's what drives me. It's like, okay, now that we're in the comfort zone, how do we go beyond that? So whenever we reach a certain comfort zone, we're kind of moving beyond that. and it's, it's time to kind of start exploring uh, new. And when you look at it from a systems perspective, which biomimicry teaches you to do, obviously everything is related. So what started off as an architecture firm that was focused on sustainable buildings, eventually we started tackling you know, health and healthy materials in interior design because that's, this is where we're actually spending our time. So we know that like, uh, the indoor air quality can be you know, three times as bad as the air outside our window. Uh, Mm -hmm. And yet we spend about 90% of our times indoor, whether it's at home or at work. And these indoor environments are actually really toxic for us. So then we started developing, you know, like looking into more the smaller scale, the interior scale, the intimate scale. And then you start thinking, but also, you know, what am I putting into, you know, like these cleaning products that I'm bringing into my home that are interacting. Even if I put in non-toxic materials inside, once you bring in, you know the conventional cleaning products, then you're bringing back these toxins in, and then you're thinking like, also, what is the food that I'm eating? And that's something that I'm ingesting. So we started looking into urban agriculture, urban farming, different things that we could do. So how do you, I mean, obviously you can't necessarily have a perfect system and that's not the point, but it's, you know, how do you lessen that toxic load that you're exposed to and that you cannot really escape? So it's all of these different explorations and that eventually with biomimicry and with systems thinking started putting them together and and so the company is actually has evolved like quite organically from being just an architecture firm to starting to offer many different services and they always stem from a personal uh inquiry um so it's always about self uh self-initiated inquiries and projects so a lot of the times we don't have a client. It's like we are coming up with a project because we are we have this inquiry that we're interested in and that pushes our thinking. Or a certain person with a with a certain background will join the team. And and I'm very open to kind of like adapting uh, you know, within certain limits, but adapting the, the work that we are doing to the interests of different people on the team. And so, you know, we'll start engaging in 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 a certain direction or pushing the boundaries in another direction, like just to, to have everyone's kind of uh, interests um, included within the organization. And so it's uh, developed, uh, yeah, into many, I mean, a lot of people now don't know, don't understand what I do. They get really confused, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, we're complex beings, so, that, so that's fine. Uh, we don't need to be put in boxes. Um, and so, yeah, so like that communication aspect is, is a bit challenging, uh, also even mm. for me. On a personal basis, to like, you know, when people ask me, "What do you do?" Um, so, with time, we're kind of learning to weave those stories and and kind of accept, you know, the the fact that we are these all, all of these many things, and that they are they are all interrelated.
0: Amazing! I have so many questions about how that's evolved, and I wonder whether I could just start by asking you to kind of tell us a little bit about some of the language that you're using. So we've talked in a moment, I'm gonna ask you a bit more about kind of how you understand this idea of regenerative and a regenerative organization, but you've also used the word biomimicry. And I wonder whether you'd be helpful just for our listeners for you to say a little bit more about what that term means to you and how that plays into your work and your practice.
1: Sure. So, I mean, biomimicry is, uh, essentially, it's it's design that is inspired by nature. It's looking at nature as a mentor. So it's about, I mean, in the words of uh, Janine Benyus, the founder of uh, biomimicry, um, uh, it's about quieting our human cleverness. So it's really about taking the time to quiet down and look at nature and really look at nature as a mentor, as, you know, this system all around us that is, you know, that we are there to, that we are a part of and that we're there to learn from. So, so that's one way of looking at it. And um, so, uh, and another way is basically that we say biomimicry is, uh, is the, is the conscious emulation of 3.8 billion years of time tested wisdom. So that means life appeared on Earth about 3.8 billion years ago. And it has developed organisms that have faced challenges that are way more complex and complicated than the ones that we're seeing right now. And they have adapted, some have failed, and some have adapted and have actually thrived in these challenging environments. And so we have 3.8 billion years of R&D that's already out there in the natural world. And if we were to just kind of really be humble enough and curious enough to look to nature, to look at ourselves, to look at our skin, at our cells, at our organs, there's so much that we can learn and that we can adapt into um, uh, facing our current challenges.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you used that word humble there, because that was what I think, that's what comes across to me so often about the ethos of biomimicry, of permaculture, of many things and many cultures that are looking to the wisdom of nature is they encourage us to take on a more humble position than a lot of our human cultures have encouraged us to do. They've encouraged us to see ourselves as like this pinnacle, this great, you know, prioritized being and to and to not be used to humbling ourselves and recognizing the greater wisdom around us and how actually short-lived we are in comparison to so many other beings that are around us and, that have been and through, How as you young say. as
1: an organism and a yeah. civilization. Yeah. So, I mean, there's this really beautiful diagram that I always uh use in my presentation. And it's um it's this kind of diagram of uh, you know, moving from an ego, um, like an egotistical perspective where you know you have this pyramid with man on top of the pyramid. And then women, and then, you know, like animals, mammals, and then, you know, all the way down to uh, like unicellular organisms and fungi, you know, at the bottom of the pyramid. And moving from that uh, perspective into an ecological perspective where we are all part of the ecosystem. And so that's, so that moves from a pyramid into just kind of like circular, like an ecosystem uh, view. Uh, And where we're all part of it and we all have an equal role and equal importance. So that's where the humbling comes in. Mm. Like, you know, without the bees and without the microorganisms that we don't see and without the bacteria in our gut and all of that, like we're not, you know, we won't survive.
0: Yeah. I remember hearing or learning this amazing fact that there are more cells of other beings within each of our bodies than there are of our own, our own in quotes, cells. And how this whole idea of us as never mind, kind of at the top of a pyramid, but like also as like a separate thing, is just completely blown out of the water by
1: being controlled by separate beings.
0: <laughs> exactly, we're just hosts for this um, this cacophony of of organisms living out their lives. We're just we're just the background, providing them with what they need.
1: Yeah, we just have to be careful not to blame them for our shortcomings.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It wasn't me. (laughs) I just, so I think this is such an incredibly valuable concept and I think it's really interesting that it's formed such a core part of your own evolution and that it sits so centrally to how you work in your organization. I would love to hear you say a bit more about how this idea of biomimicry, how that relates to your idea of what it means to be regenerative as an organization. How do those two concepts interrelate and, and what does it mean for you for an organization to be regenerative?
1: I mean, so first of all, so as I said, uh, I mean, the the company has has grown organically. And so that's something that first happened. Um, it, it just naturally happened. It's like I at some points where I was trying to force things that didn't belong. They just didn't they just didn't stick. And it's just by learning to actually Trust, trust. I don't know the universe. Trust life. Just, just trust that things will fall into place if you are on a certain path, and that will eventually start attracting the right kind of clients, the right kind of projects, the right kind of you know things that you want or that you need to happen. Um, and so this is how we've been operating. So it's been a lot less about me trying to control the 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 direction as much as holding space for different things, different uh, inquiries that come up, different team members that come in and different interests uh, uh, that will come and inform basically the the work that we do. Um, And so, yeah, so definitely like uh, from a biomimicry perspective, it's, it's, it permeates uh, my thinking. So it's not something that is, that i can separate like i cannot pinpoint this is where this comes in you know a lot of people ask me so how are you specifically very specific you know applying biomimicry so a lot of people think of biomimicry as you know you come up with products Mm. but that's not the case i mean products is definitely like one of the main things it's the most tangible thing that you can understand from biomimicry but that's not the whole you know that's that's not the whole thing the whole idea of Biomuka is that it can be universally applied, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a designer, you're an educator, you're a lawyer, a marketing professional. <clears throat> and so it just permeates uh, everything that I do. So there's mm. not a clear way to pinpoint.
0: It's more, a, what I'm hearing from you is that it's, it's more a way of being, a way of, of thinking and operating rather than a kind of a method. Um, yes. or kind of a prescribed set of steps or, or anything exactly. like that.
1: So we use it as a method sometimes on specific projects but it's always there in any case in the way that you know we've always had a kind of like a flat hierarchy uh, we've been experimenting with different organisational models system thinking the way that we approach our projects. So an architecture project for us is not just about the building, the object. It's about how does that building, what is the context it's sitting in? How is that, how is it interacting with its context? How is it negatively impacting? How can it positively impact the context that it's in? So you're actually regenerating those, you know, like degraded lands in cities. So can you build in a way that you're actually hosting other forms of life or that you're actually regenerating these degraded lands as well? So, I mean, all of these questions are, are always up um, there.
0: Mm. Oh, okay. So much that you've raised that I want to dig into. So, firstly, something you talked about that feels like it's key to you about how you are seeking to kind of live this idea of being more regenerative has been about trust, has been about to some degree relinquishing an idea of yourself as in control and determining what's going to happen and opening more space up to just see what happens and to go with the flow. Tell me about how you. you navigate that because I can I'm I'm sure there'll be people listening who are like oh my goodness you know I've got a mortgage to pay I've got children to feed if I just like chill out and wait and see what comes like what if it doesn't work what if nothing 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 happens because my understanding is um maybe one thing we should clarify is the other dada is a is a for-profit business is that correct um
1: so yeah so we're registered as a for-profit business in Lebanon uh we operate more like a social business uh we are lebanon's first uh b uh sorry we are lebanon's first certified b corporation so we really i mean I believe that business can and should be a force for good and this is something that I try to exemplify through the company, especially in the challenging context and environment of Lebanon like all these problems we're seeing around the world i mean they are compounded in this tiny country with all of these tensions and they're all happening within a two year time span, you know, it's like Mm. COVID. It's a failed state. It's the third largest non-nuclear explosion in the history of the world. It's, I mean, like you name it, uh, no electricity for 23 hours a day. We don't have electricity. Uh, Devaluation of our currency by more than 90%. uh, You know, money like just blocked in banks, Poverty rates going from 20% to 80% in the matter of just like three months, like just mind boggling. Like just think of a country that is dealing with one of these issues. And then this is all happening at the same time here. So, so yeah, it's uh, this, I mean, but, but this makes it, it is a necessity for us to, to, to be able to survive and thrive. And it's not at all about sitting back and waiting for things to happen. This is why, I, what I said at the beginning, we always um, come up with inquiries and we're always self-initiating projects. So this is how we get going. We're not just waiting for things to fall into our laps because they will not. And it's really about, if you want to attract these things, like you want to, you want to start that exploration, you want to set those intentions, And then you have to work towards creating the space or creating the whatever the energy to attract all of all of these things that you're looking for. So it's definitely not a passive Mm. way of doing things. It's really super active, and it's and it's difficult because you're going to be running uphill over and over and over again. And as soon as you you know you reach the top, and then there's another one, and another one, and another one. And sometimes there are like several at the same time.
0: Somehow for you, this trust that following that path would lead you somewhere of greater thriving, despite the, as you say, the massive challenges around you, that that trust, where did that trust come from and how has that, how has that gone?
1: Um, it's, it's come from... I don't know, like being, being in nature, being part of nature, uh, going through these different programs like biomimicry and system thinking and, you know, studying ecosystem restoration. And uh, we also work in, in urban afforestation. So, so we're mimicking, we're, we're emulating these uh, forest ecosystems back into the city. All of these things are teaching us like you just have to set the right conditions. So you have to prepare the soil well, you have to bring life back to the soil, you have to get the soil healthy. And then this is where, you know, all of these unseen forces are happening and are connecting. And this is what sets the, uh, the it's the substrate for the forest to actually be able to thrive. So you need all of that work, you need all of these connections, all of this networking, uh, and all of that support system, basically, to help you thrive. Um so, yeah, so the trust came kind of naturally. It wasn't necessarily there before. It just also came through these different interactions uh, with the natural world and with a lot of kind of testing and seeing, and seeing when we were trying to force things that didn't necessarily belong, that they didn't pan out or they were a waste of time or all of that.
0: Mm. Ah, so, I'm hearing very much in, in what you're saying that the trust comes partly from a really deep knowledge. A knowledge of natural systems, a kind of engagement with, as you say, the kind of conditions, the things that we can learn from how nature operates and how nature thrives. But it's also
1: subconscious. It's not like just, it's not just, it's not because I am technically aware of, you know, how a tree functions, all of that. That that try. It's just when you're surrendering to nature, when you're there, when you're just humbling yourself to listen uh you know that that kind of you know the, the answers are all there
0: mm. so this
1: is I think maybe this is where the trust comes from it's the answers are there we have to decipher it we have to we have to figure out how to get to the answers and what to do with
0: it yeah gorgeous because I was gonna say this kind of combination of knowledge and humility and then you you brought that in beautifully because it seems like that's kind of the big piece right is this recognition that We can never know what we don't know. And we have to kind of acknowledge the fact that there's so much that we don't know and that nature has managed to achieve without us having any idea how. And that so much of that is there for us to learn from if we if we just, as you say, kind of let it teach us. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask about was you mentioned kind of a a flat hierarchy and approach within the organization of, of, I suppose, trying to kind of move away from some of the rigid pyramidal hierarchies that are more traditional could you say a bit more about what that is what kinds of things you've been experimenting with and also what you've maybe learned along the way
1: sure so um so it's basically i mean we've always been uh we've always been a small team but i've always trusted the the uh, you know the people on the team to to take initiative, to be proactive, to come up with uh, with ideas and solutions and come up with concepts for projects. Um, so it's never been, there was never a hierarchy where there was a very strict um, uh, kind of review process or anything like that. It's like everyone's, everyone's ideas are welcome, but also everyone is responsible for their own work. Um, and it's never been a kind of manager employee relationship but it's more been about a mentoring relationship and so that goes not just for me but um, for anyone else on the team whether that person is an intern or a senior architect um, you know everyone has something to teach and so an intern can be very proficient in a certain topic and if we have a project you know where that topic is central so so that person, even though they're not necessarily a full part of the team, take ownership of that, and they become the lead designer or the lead, you know, manager on that project, and then we are there to support them in that uh, um, in that design process. And so these roles are always shifting. So it's always about this kind of like mentor uh, um, relationship. I I mean, for me, this is the way that. The way that i've that i've been approaching it and i find it to be to be a really uh interesting way um, to do it so it's always shifting it's very dynamic so different projects will have different project leads um from different parts of the organizations from uh different levels of, um, of seniority and all of that
0: and have you faced challenges with bringing that in or did everyone that you've worked with kind of take to that more fluid arrangement Just like a duck to
1: Definitely lots of challenges, lots of abuse um, of people who didn't necessarily take this uh, seriously or thought, okay, there's no oversight and so we can do just, you know, we can just do whatever we want to do. But at the end of the day, like it just shows in the work. And for me, like when when you don't have a riveting, uh, super interesting, when you're not able to have that kind of like really mind-boggling conversation with people on your team like for me that's just like that relationship's not working their heart's not into it their passion's not there and something and so if i don't have this kind of creative you know bubbling where i get excited by talking to different people like this is where i know that it that yeah they're not putting their all into it or they're not necessarily a right fit
0: okay so the people who struggled with the arrangement Ended up just not being right for the organization. Is that is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yeah, definitely. Like you know, yeah. those who had trouble with, um, you know, who wanted to impose themselves as an authority, for example. Whereas this is not, you know, so so those people didn't. Uh, I mean, did not uh, stay on as part of the team. Those who did not want to learn or uh, or explore new possibilities uh, as well. So um, so that's also evolved a lot because obviously. We started as an architecture firm, so that you know it was mostly composed of architects. But then slowly, as the as the um, the organization evolved, like you know the the profile of people evolved into interior architects and landscape architects. And now we're at uh, we're at a point where we are at a completely different place. And I actually don't have any architects on the team, so we, we I just have to say we are a really small team. Um, so we're a team of, uh, of four people at the moment. and But now we have, you know, like a social scientist, we have a physicist, we have uh, an, um, like a business uh, person on the team, you know? So this is, but all of them are, have gone through a shift in their life, the same way that I've gone through a shift from my architectural rigid kind of like, you know, a definition of myself into something else. So they have become permaculture farmers or they're moving into regenerative uh, uh, organizational development and so on and so forth so it's really Mm -hmm. about attracting people who are in flux and so this is where we are at the moment with the organization which brings again its own set of challenges but it's uh, but it's very it's a very exciting time for us
0: so if you were speaking to someone who is planning to set up an organization themselves. And they were saying, look, I want to try and make this as life-centered, as regenerative as possible. And I'm thinking about how I'm going to organize the people within this organization. What, what would you say to them? What What would kind of be your advice about how to go about bringing people into a structure?
1: <clears throat> um, it's very challenging because you also you you have to be, you have to be quite, um, very patient uh, as, because as you're navigating this new thing, not everyone who's joining is, is on the same wavelength as you. Um, and so it's difficult to find people who are already within that and working within this. And these examples aren't you know, that common. So it's difficult, it's gonna be difficult to find someone who's coming from a regenerative organization to join and help you kickstart your regenerative organization. So there's really a lot of work on building up, uh, on building that up, uh, building a team culture that is based on trust, uh, building, um, you know, setting up processes in place that enable, um, t- like you know, like the the well-being of the team, and and really being patient and being vulnerable and open to everything that this will bring with them. So there's no separating work life from personal life. You know, like you're mm-hmm. hearing all the stories of all the little things that are happening and how that is impacting their, uh, you know, their mental state, and uh, any mental challenges that they're going through uh, and all of that. But it's, so it is very challenging and it's something that I'm not yet very comfortable with. So it's, again, it's, it's very difficult to just start like saying, "I want to build the perfect organization." I don't think it really works, uh, and in nature, like perfection doesn't exist. It's like you know like uh, the leaves of, of of a plant, you know they photosynthesize and uh, but they're not the most e- efficient at transforming energy uh, sorry, at transforming you know the the sunlight into energy. Their efficiency is actually quite low, but that's because they're also doing. 100 other things so they don't need to be perfect in that one thing you know you just need to have a coherent whole a holistic you're looking at things holistically Mm. um and so i've this is a lesson that that i learned is like i used to be a perfectionist and this i'm a recovering perfectionist
0: so (laughs) i
1: (laughs) have i always try very hard like not to do because i always used to push things you know push and push and not start things or not or not release things until they were perfect and until i learned that you know what like that's just not the way to do it like you know mm. they're good enough and i think with our by leadership uh uh you know we learned this thing like if you're not slightly ashamed of it uh <laughs> so what was it how, how did it go like oh, if you're slightly ashamed of it, this is the time to release it. You know, like, yeah. yeah.
0: So um, Adeep and I were both part of uh, an amazing initiative called the Bioleadership Fellowship. We were both fellows in the first cohort. And at some point, I can't remember why, but I was compelled to share a quote that I also came across from a source that I now can't recall. But the quote was, if you're if not a bit embarrassed, then you're sharing it too late. So, oh, yeah, like you say, it. like <laughs> it's killing off the perfectionist in us and saying, actually, yeah, if you're waiting until you're you think it's perfect, then you're waiting too late.
1: <laughs> and there's a difference between there's difference between you know when we think of like the minimum viable product, like that's not what we're going for. We're not going mm-hmm. for like that, you know the easiest thing that you know that we can do that will just kind of work. No, we're looking to push the boundaries, but we're not looking to be to have everything figured out. That we can just get the ball rolling and we can get started. And this is where things, you know, some things will fall off, some things will stick and yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think there's so much wisdom in that. And I think that links so much to the humility and the trust that we've just been circling around so far of just recognizing that there's, there's knowledge and wisdom that will be emerged that we can't plan for, that we can't foresee, that we can't have integrated into our perfect plan that's not how it you works. just hold the
1: space for it.
0: Mm. Amazing. So, Adib, I know that when we spoke um, ahead of this conversation, we talked about some of the ways, some of the other ways um, beyond kind of the, the hierarchy piece that we've spoken about, that you are seeking to bring this idea of being regenerative, of integrating the wisdom of nature into how you operate within the organization. I wonder if you want to share a few more of those things that you've been experimenting with internally.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I got to a point with uh, with the company where, um, so so sorry, so so you said so you introduced the company and you said yes, we are a nonprofit, and I said we are Lebanon's first B Corp, and we use, you know, we think companies can be a force for good, uh, and that comes from. Again, our very kind of local context where we have, I think we have maybe the highest uh, per capita rate of NGOs, like, you know, like relative to the size of the country. Okay. So we have over over 12,000 NGOs. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that means the system is broken. I mean, NGOs can be great, but it's like not necessarily the way to solve. They're not, you know, necessarily the way to solve things. Uh especially with regards to our current system, uh, you know, the system that we're in at the moment. And so I believe that, you know, when we're within a system that values uh, profit and capital and all of that, so companies are, you know, they're the companies are regarded as uh, like human entities, you know, and they're recognized by law, whereas nature is not yet recognized.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so for me, it's, this is the kind of cycle that we need to break. So by showing that companies can and should be the ones that are leading the way and thinking of redefining success. So, what does success mean? So, what does success mean to me? So, for me, it's not about profit. So, for me, it's about like so far, we've been using uh, nature and like ecology and, and society as tools to increase profit whereas profit should be a tool that society is using to live sustainably within the planetary boundaries so it's again shifting that shifting that perspective and putting things in the right place so our current goal because our goal changes uh, over the years but our current goal is really increasing impact and so increasing impact for us happens through well, one very easy way that we are increasing impact is by actually planting. So we are doing urban afforestation. So we're planting thousands of trees across different cities in Lebanon and looking to, um, you know, to, to expand that to, to the region. Um, and so this is, you know, this is direct impact. This is direct climate mitigation work. So that's one part. But the other part that we're also doing, so that's impact, that's tangible impact on the ground um now of course you're going to say like our numbers are insignificant because we're in this kind of like tiny insignificant country but it's just about getting that work started and it's about showing the way and kind of um like showing the way that this is you know like as a company that is a for-profit company and we do not want to become an NGO that's why we consider ourselves like a social business even though that. Does not legally exist in Lebanon, so we cannot operate on this basis in Lebanon. So we are operating under a for-profit business because legally we can either be a for-profit or an NGO in Lebanon or a nonprofit. So we are operating, you know, in this. So we are setting the we are setting the standards for ourselves. That's why mm. things like the you know B Corp certifications are important for us. Uh, you know, social business models and social enterprise models are important for us. Because we are creating those structures for ourselves, so again, we're not waiting till the government passes a law that allows for social businesses to you know to incorporate. This is why I'm saying it's not a passive way of being it's we are actually actively doing that and setting these systems and raising the bar for us to work you know to work um, to work with and so so, yeah, so this, is, uh, so this is something like this kind of like self-discipline and pushing the boundaries again uh, that we're following. Um, and so this is one way of increasing uh, impact. So tangible impact by planting, impact by showing the way uh, of this is what's happening. And if we can do it in such a, you know, such a place, such a challenging place, you know, uh, like you can definitely like get started with a tiny idea somewhere else. Uh, and the other way is about uh, raising awareness. It's through education, so that's why we are very much involved in a lot of educational projects, a lot of educational programs, working with kids and teens, working with schools and universities. You know, being part of of conferences locally and internationally, uh, uh, being involved in culture because art is you know is also another way of reaching to of reaching people. Mm. So. So so many different ways that we integrate and uh, yeah, to get to get that message uh, to get that message across.
0: Oh, I think I just love that emphasis in what you've just said of, don't wait. there's no need to wait. there's no need to wait for permission or for a law or for someone else to start this. We all need to just dive in.
1: Don't wait, D- don't wait. Like like when we started these forests, I mean, the reason I started the forest. Uh, I mean, i I'd, I'd been working on this issue of the Beirut River, which is which was transformed from like a healthy ecosystem into a sewage canal in the span of like fifty years, and it's causing so much problems and uh, and all of that, and it's like, you know, I'd like for six years I was lobbying and I was doing you know, um, uh, community gatherings and communal design exercises and participatory design, and all of that, but then you know, no one actually cared because it was such a big topic and such a big problem. And especially given, you know, that we're in a failed state that these governmental approvals will never come. So at the end, we, I mean, at the end, I went through a burnout for for about a year. But when I came back uh, into my advocacy work, it was really about finding a tangible action that we could take. And that tangible action, a really good friend of mine actually proposed put me in touch with um, Shubendu Sharma, who's one of the leading uh, afforestation specialists. Uh, and, you know, we got on a, on a call and we just hatched up this plan to bring back the forest ecosystem that was, you know, next to the river before the river was encased in concrete. So since we couldn't bring the river itself back to life, what if we could bring back the forest ecosystem back to the concrete banks of the river? And that is a very tangible action uh, it's an action that is that looks very inoffensive, so it's not like you know, like different political parties can say I agree or I don't agree or this goes mm-hmm. against my beliefs, you know. So it's seen as a very apolitical act, but for me, it's actually a very political act. It's a political act that we did that to say that you know what, we're actually going to reclaim these degraded lands that the system has deemed as not valuable. How can land and you know like earth be not valuable? So the system has. It, by design, turned them into non-valuable lands and non-valuable... And so so this was like, a, uh, like an informal urban landfill. So to come in, to reclaim those degraded lands, to empower the community, to come together, clean up, prepare the soil, plant trees and shrubs and all of that, and then help in maintaining those sites so that eventually they become green public spaces for them. So for me, that's a very political but that's a very and that's the way that i at least learned to operate in lebanon is like it's it's covert and so whatever you want to do you do it covertly and otherwise you you know it's just like you get blocked from all sides so we're Mm. just doing our own thing we're not asking too many permissions we are not asking you know for we're not going through the legal process uh, we do the minimum thing that we need to do. So we just kind of inform the municipality where we're going to be operating, but we don't talk to Ministry of Environment or Ministry of Public Works or any kind of, you know, and a lot of people are like, oh, you should propose this, you should do this, you should talk to the Ministry of We're like, no, because whenever you're going to start talking to these higher levels of government, this is where things start getting complicated. And this is where we actually have, you know, the obstacles get uh, get set up. Yeah. and so we try to do things at the community level, and the local government level is the you know is the most uh, that we will seek uh, approval uh, approval from. So we didn't wait to start; we just you know had found this tiny plot. We're like, you know what? Hey, like, can we do this? And you know, first municipality said no, second municipality no, the third they're like sure, and so we just got started, and then it became bigger and bigger and bigger, and now it's been four years that we're doing that. In that same location, and we've moved from planting 800 trees to now having more than uh, how much are we? We're at around 10,000 uh, plants, uh, trees, and shrubs in that location.
0: Wow, this is in one location, in one part of the city.
1: That's in one in one part of the city next to the Beirut River that we keep on expanding as we get more funds and as we get more uh, help. So this is a part of the business that is completely nonprofit. So we work okay. on those, we set our own standards, we made our own decisions that, and even before, like before the financial crisis of two, two and a half years ago, we were actually doing this as a, uh, on a pro bono basis. So we we're just, you know, getting funds that we were directly putting into the ground, literally, and yeah. we were not covering, we were not offsetting any of our costs, any of our maintenance or anything like that. After the financial crisis, we needed to start actually being able to cover our own costs. So, so we operate uh, on this basis. So whatever funds we receive, they cover just the bare minimum costs for the company, the team, and everything else is put into the actual uh, forest uh, making, anything that is uh, uh, remaining from the fund. So if we if we came in under, under the actual fund, then that gets set up and put uh, for future maintenance work, but this is our own, you know, like we, there's no legal structure governing, like, you know, obliging us to do this. Mm -hmm. This is what we've decided. And this is why then getting things like, you know, the B Corp certification and now looking at, you know, having a board of advisors for the company. So we're setting the pace to build more credibility and more transparency because this initiative is, is, is really growing.
0: So you've talked a little bit about how this initiative, which, you know, how amazing is it that an architecture firm or what was initially an architecture firm, if we had to put like a name around it, is now in the business of forest making. You know, like this is just, it kind of, it messes with people's brains a little bit and go, oh, hang on. Is this allowed?
1: It messes with people's brains when they see me like knee deep and like trash cleaning up the trash and, you know, preparing the soil and doing things like that with a team of, like, architects and business people and, you know, like, this whole diverse community that we're bringing together. They're like, but aren't you an architect? Like, why are you, you know, aren't there, like, laborers who can do this work? You know, it's, like, just because we're part of the whole process. Like, we're not just, you know, saying, okay, you do this and then we, you know, we just observe. Like, we really like the whole team, whether they are part of these projects or not, whether they're architects or finance or whichever, you know, part they're in, whenever we're having this planting, everyone is involved and everyone is like, you know, gets their hands dirty and everyone is engaging with the community and, and, and doing all of that. So that's a really important part of the, uh, yeah, that's a really important part of the work. And that's, but that's for me is part of the natural art. So, so the way I see it at this moment, we've, I've gone from uh, like building habitat for humans to understanding the impact of this habitat on the planet and on other organisms to eventually now going to the other extreme. And now we're in the, we're in the, we're working to build habitat for other organisms. So the end of that arc, or not the end, but the next step of that arc for me is to bring those two together. So how do we build? like habitat for humans and a habitat for other organisms and then what we are doing is actually we're building like interspecies habitat. We're building mm-hmm. this space, shared space for humans and other organisms to thrive together. We're not there yet. So now we're in the other extreme, you know, so now where I'm like, I don't want to hear about clients and I don't want to hear their concerns and like if they like this color or this shape or I don't know what, you know, what? I want to be, you know, working on the field, out in the sun, out in nature, transforming places with a really cool group of people, whether it's my team or just the people who are that are getting attracted uh, to the work that we're doing, so it's really extremely fulfilling, and that's I think something that we discussed also. This is what has given me um, like clarity and the sense of grounding within this whole. I mean, I keep there's a word that I want to use, but that I probably should not be using. <laughs> so uh, within this whole kind of like, yeah, like very, very dynamic, very shifting situation, very unstable situation that we're in. Uh, so that's actually like, that's given me the, the the grounding and the clarity that this is the path that I'm following and that I know in my heart is, is right. And so I don't have this, this uh, uh, anxiety about living uh, in a country like Lebanon. So when I see a lot of my friends, most of my friends who've actually left the country, uh, the fact that they don't have something connecting them or something grounding them to this place, so I feel very lucky to have found that, and that has given me the yeah, the grounding to to decide to stay here and to work here. I was on the street for three months, like you know, like part of the revolution, which lasted nine months but I was like for three months I was there like on the ground and meeting so many incredible people and people who've left their work and their lives and their families just to be on the ground you know and we really tried but it's just you know like the the that system around this is just so powerful Mm. and it's just it was very difficult to break through very difficult and so
0: I really hear from you like an encouragement to to not get sucked up into the, into those, into that system and to find ways to go around them, to, to find Definitely. ways to nonetheless do what. Uh, I mean, I, I
1: advocate do. revolution whenever I can, but that's like, you know, you have to like, I mean, advocacy and activism is just central, like, core part of who I am and what we try to be also as, as a, as a company. Like, you know, we are really advocating, we're really pushing things, we're pushing for things to be different we have a responsibility to do that uh, at the beginning i thought you know early on i thought it was because i had the privilege because i had uh you know i grew up uh having money having privilege all of that even though i mean we're in lebanon so it's all relative and but then i discovered and that was also in part through the the by leadership uh, sessions that that we'd had i mean that's not the reason why i do it it's not because of the privilege i have but it's you know it's it's I don't know, it's, it's just part of who I am and part of what, What for me, the, the, like the organization is an extension of who I am and that I would like to, you know, for it to take on a life of its own. But okay. we have to be engaged, we have to be active, we have to fight things with the tools that we have, whether that's a shovel, whether that's an Excel sheet, whatever it is.
0: Mm. Everyone, are you listening? <laughs> i think that's such an important message um Adeb, i have a, a hypothesis that i just want to run by you so you were talking about how everyone in the organization gets involved in the planting of trees and this organization that's as you say kind of started out about developing habitats for humans is now kind of really embracing this this identity of exploring what it means to create habitats for the more than human world. And you have this inkling about where you might be heading, bringing those worlds together. I'm, I have a hypothesis that by having your team there with their hands in the soil, engaging with the day-to-day practice of a tree and its needs and what an ecosystem around a river wants looked look like, that that benefits you, your business, your organization in a whole host of really tangible and intangible ways. I can imagine perhaps that that sparks conversations that then might influence some of the work you do that's based on Definitely. a very tangible, physical product for a human being. It might um, introduce us to ideas around how nature works that then feed in. Is, is that true? Is, is that hypothesis right?
1: Definitely. That's, that's, that's so true. You know, when we're, when we're on the ground together and we're like working together and we're trying to, you know, to bring care to this. So obviously it's not just about trees. So we're literally like, we're restoring ecosystems. In our case, we're restoring forest ecosystems. And then the tree is just a part of that ecosystem because we're also working on restoring the, the healthy soil, the microorganisms, the fungi, the shrubs, the herbs, the plants, the trees, you know, all of that so it's teaching us about the importance of and we've seen it in plots that were not watered properly or that we didn't necessarily have time to do the soil preparation right we see how that impacts the the forest after a mm. year or two so you can really see the the you know the outcome of our like the the results of our actions and definitely you draw so many comparisons to the way that you're you know you're leading the way that you're leading the way that you're leading, you know, the business is, is, uh, is working the way that the team is, uh, is interacting when we are there together, you know, there's really like a complete, like, you know, no hierarchy. Uh, People are coming in. uh, We are engaging with, uh, you know, Syrian refugee families who live across from the site that we are restoring and they're bringing us food and they're sharing their tea and they're learning Mm -hmm. about what we do. And their work is about, doing urban farming but in the conventional way so they're using pesticides and all of that and we're there just across the road using no pesticides and promoting pollinators and you know restoring this habitat So then these conversations come up and it starts you know it starts that triplet effect uh it teaches us about seasonality so that's something that also you and i discussed this is something that we're looking to integrate right now so we've noticed over the last few years that we're mostly planting in the springtime um, and then we're planting in the, in the fall. And so these are times that we are so invested on like mentally and physically, like it's so physically demanding that we don't have the, the time or the headspace to do anything else, to work on our architecture project mm-hmm. or to develop, you know, like brand proposal or, or anything like that. So now we're trying to develop, like we're working to develop a seasonal flow of work where we know we have these two big chunks of, let's say, intense planting and intense habitat creation. And then, you know, now we're getting into the winter season. I mean, which feels like spring, actually, but we are supposedly in this winter season. And so this is the time for us to finish off the project that we'd started from the year before, hand over, close off accounts and do, you know, like closing off the accounting and the the auditing part and all of this. Yep. closing off any reporting that we need to do for the forest, that we need to send to our funders, doing all of these things, tying up loose ends, and then going into, I wouldn't say hibernation mode, I mean, but maybe like a creative mode where we're coming together and we're spending more time together at the office and, and we're starting a strategy uh, sessions and we're setting up the strategy for the next year. And we're setting up, so we're using different tools, uh, like um, uh, so. This is one of the things that Ramona is bringing in. So, um, um, you know, so instead of working with KPIs, we're working with OKRs. We're working with objectives and key results. So, what are our objectives for the year? But we're we're dividing it into, you know, into four quadrants, so the four seasons. And so, basically, what is our objectives for you know the first quarter for the first season? What are the key results that we need to achieve to, you know, that we need to do to achieve that objective and then taking stock at the end of that season, the beginning of, you know, the next season, what have we achieved? Why, you know, why did we achieve this and not that and then doing, you know, doing that. So doing this, you know, tying our work to the seasons. So hibernation uh, uh, and creative thinking and strategizing in the winter, working maybe on some design projects on proposals, on grant writing, And then we get into spring and this is where, you know, we have the preparation for our project and then the actual implementation. And then the summer is where it's too hot to be doing implementation, but we have a lot of follow-up and maintenance that needs to happen. But at the same, so it's a lot of care that we need Mm -hmm. to do uh, Mm -hmm. in that that period. So at the same time, this is where we may, may be working on other consulting projects and architecture projects, and then going back into the fall season, which is then again into intense Preparation and planting and physical work so so yeah so kind of like looking at the cyclical uh flow of work uh and times of rest for us as well mm-hmm. so that's that's something that we're exploring at the moment
0: yeah i i wondered because i know you mentioned earlier that you had experienced a burnout in the past and this is something that you know seems like another pandemic that's all over the world people are are experiencing situations of of having too much of being overly stretched, and I wondered how this idea of working cyclically, of introducing seasonality into how you work internally, whether you are, whether that came from also an ambition to kind of back, keep things more balanced for yourselves as individuals, and how that's playing out. Is it something that kind of helps to restore a bit more balance for you? In terms of your experience,
1: yeah, I mean that came really as a learning from the forests and the way that we that we're working with the forests. So from the forest, from observing the seasons and how different, you know, when we're planting things in spring, how are they behaving differently than when we're planting that same, you know, mix of species, but we're planting it in in uh, in the fall. Um, how the forest is evolving over time, how our energy levels are evolving as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. And since the afforestation part has become a very big part of the work that we do, uh, you know, so we really have to give it uh, uh, to give it the time and to to really also kind of like honor that uh, uh, that process. So so it's as much about the reality of the work on the ground. Uh, it's uh, about the learnings from the forest, but also about you know observing our energy levels and and trying to strike a, a balance between also our personal lives so I mean I, I have two young kids uh you know have other people on the team who who have who you know have someone who just had a baby mm. others who are in different uh, times of their lives but they're you know dealing with other issues so so really kind of also um honoring honoring that um and honoring you know that people have their own different internal seasons as well
0: mm. yeah I am um... I actually have a note on my board here next to me, which is about, which it tries to remind me um, of this balance. And the note is asking me about how I am bringing the energy of in winter into my mm. spring and summer, because I when I wrote that note I was really noticing that kind of work and life was entering a spring for me lots of things were growing and emerging and there was a lot of energy and lots of things taking off and yeah I noticed kind of like okay there's there's you know that's wonderful and brings so much joy and excellence to it um um excellence with it but then how do i balance that how do i make sure that that energy of winter of slightly maybe more reflective more restorative energy is also has a space as well and that um doesn't have to kind of go from one pole to another
1: yeah and our propensity to kind of like always try to cram things like okay we're done with the planting now you know we still uh, like there's so much that we now need to catch up on so this is you know this is so uh disruptive Mm. And it's really about learning to let go and learning to to say no to projects and to prioritize, you know, your mental health, your team's mental health and saying like, you know what, we cannot actually take this on at the moment. Uh, obviously, it's not perfect. like, And it might not always work. Like if I do get an amazingly interesting architecture project that's going to come in at the worst time ever, for the planting you know but this is where also it's about building a team that's what we're trying to do is really like build a team that can support each other so when people need to go off or need to focus on other things whether that's another part of the work or that's on a personal you know uh, basis Mm. that we are able to pick up the slack and really support each other through um through these times we're not there yet but it's like this is the this is what we're aiming um you know, this is what we're implementing at the moment.
0: Yeah, wonderful. I think so often when, kind of, I find myself talking about the idea of a regenerative organization, regenerative work, um, the idea of the thriving of life. I think a lot for a lot of people, uh, what I notice is that they turn um, immediately to kind of the the non-human, the more than human. Um, so there's a, you know immediately thinking about okay, well, this is work that is environmentally. Uh, focused or environmentally responsible and whilst that's absolutely true the idea of the thriving of life absolutely needs to include the thriving of us we are all life and you know as you say kind of thinking about the thriving of the people within your organization the thriving of yourself is core because everything is interconnected and if you are burnt out then the work that you're doing in the organization is obviously not going to be thriving.
1: Of course and then you say I mean we are we are part of life like Humans, indigenous people have shaped the environment around them. Mm. Like nature as we know it is not a pristine nature. Even the Amazon, you know, like even the remotest parts have been shaped by us humans, the same way that animals shape their environment, you know. So, yeah. So, we are part of nature. We have a responsibility to take care of nature, to shape it and all that. So, it's just, it's just about, about how to do it and about not being extractive and it's about uh, uh, balance and it's about are you shaping it for the benefit of all life including humans or are you shaping it just for your own you know for your own benefit or for the benefit of a specific corporation mm-hmm. so that's where yeah
0: yeah that holistic peace comes in but comes in again
1: and it's uh, i mean for us like also on like the, the organizational level like it's really about we're at the moment so I'm so I look at my like at my company, which started a little like a little more than ten years ago, and it's like uh when we look at a f- like the ecological succession in a forest, you know, you start let's say from a bare land, to a savanna, you start getting gra- pioneering grasses, pioneering shrubs, mm-hmm. pioneering trees, and that's going to take you know about like two hundred and fifty years, three hundred years, and then you can get uh you know like a uh, like a big fire that's actually going to burn all of this biomass that's going to then enrich the soil. And this is what's going to give way to the climax forest. So the, to the climax forest ecosystem that then is going to take over. So for me, we've kind of passed through that pioneering stage. And now we are literally in that place where there's this big transformation. So this is where the blaze is happening.
0: Mm, like for
1: me, we're, we're in it. the fire. And that's happening at the same time with the country as well. So I'm hoping that as an organization, we can come up we can come out as this kind of climate forest. Uh I'm not so sure about the country, but at least, you know, on our part, like we we do we do what we can. Uh mm. so we're really in that really ex- like in that destructive creative destruction transformation time that, that is happening. And what we are doing is we're really setting structures in place, not to be rigid, but actually to have like a skeleton that or like a tree trunk that's going to allow for the tree to sway and for the branches to be able to be, you know, to sway and to be rooted to the ground. So, so I believe like you need to have a, a, you need to have a defined structure that is, that is there to hold all these pieces, all these interconnected pieces together, Mm -hmm. but it has to be flexible and dynamic enough that it's not rigid and that it will break. And so that's, um, that's then also interacting, you know with all of the other organisms, all of the other companies around you, and all of the other stakeholders uh, um around you, which you can see or you cannot see and all of that.
0: I love that vision and that m- reminder of kind of the the gift of fire um, that mm. you know, I remember coming across the there is a species of pine, the lodgepole pine the the seeds in its cone will only be released in the heat of a wildfire so the tree only regenerates after a fire um and just being reminded that that yeah this phase that we're going through now which which often can feel really just awful can just feel very violent despair it's yeah <laughs> it can feel just extremely destructive and and that can be can feel overwhelming that it that these phases can also, as you say, be, be a process of giving birth to to what next needs to come, that next phase.
1: And transitioning, I mean, not everyone, you know, not everything will survive. So the, these pioneering grasses and trees and all of that, you know, they played their role. And now you're transitioning into a different, more mature, more complex ecosystem. So you've gone from a simple ecosystem to a complex, more resilient um, uh, ecosystem. So that's that's really important to also keep in mind are yeah. moving towards something more more complex more resilient uh, mm. that will hopefully let us thrive and that, that hosts more life than you know than what that pioneering forest is hosting so it's okay to let go of these ancient ways uh, or you know the conventional ways that uh, that we've been accustomed to and mm. um, changing changing perspectives and all of that
0: so how do you, how do you do that? How do in your life and practice, in, in terms of kind of getting better at letting go or building resilience, what are the practices, tools, things that you have in your life that that help you to to try and live that?
1: I'm not there yet. I don't have a practice. I don't I can't can't meditate. I can't, you know, I, I just can't get myself to. To be still and and all of that, uh, having also kind of like two young kids, I mean, it's it's just you know, it's challenging again, given the given the environment that we're in, and the thousand distractions uh, that are happening, you know. So there's mm-hmm. absolutely no way to plan. You cannot plan, like not even a week ahead. Like that's how volatile the situation is. So, so yeah, so it's about kind of having a course, staying on course as much as possible, uh, trusting that, you know, like you're headed in the in the right direction and that things will come to you if you are setting up the right space and the right energy for it. Um, yeah, it's something that I still need to work on. So I still need to work on myself in terms of like developing, a, a you know, a much more structured practice. So it's, uh, it's, It's in the making, but definitely when I'm in, in nature, like for me, like every, you know, and that's the beauty of Lebanon. It's like every weekend we're escaping out in nature, Mm -hmm. whether we're at the beach or by hiking by a river or walking in a forest or, you know, skiing in the mountains, like just, you know, it's, it's an easy, you're an hour away from all of these things. So it's, it's an easy way to disconnect. So that's for me, that's that weekend. Disconnect is really important to recharge. And when mm. I don't get that, it's really, it definitely uh, affects my week. So this is. Uh,
0: mm. Yeah, I, I'm really curious also, like, you know, you say, oh, as long as you're kind of setting things up. Um, well, creating the right conditions, then then you can kind of then embrace the trust to sort of let things um, you know kind of go from there that you a lot of your job is creating the conditions
1: you have to create conditions conducive to life
0: yeah and I'm curious like when you're whatever it is designing a, a building whenever you are um, recruiting a person do you get signals how do what, what do you use to go like this feels right this doesn't is it just like intrinsic values sitting within you do you get signals from your body are there any things that you use to help you be like oh, is this right? Is this wrong? How do I know I'm on the right path here? Uh,
1: I I don't know. It's, I don't know. It just, it happens and I'm not yet, I'm not yet able to read my cues. And this is definitely something that I'd like to work on. Mm. Um, so yeah, definitely. I think that would uh, help me a lot uh, in terms of, Sifting through the you know through the chaos, yeah, like being able to really be in tune with yourself and really listening to these cues in your body, like those physical reactions that happen, uh but I'm not there yet,
0: mm, mm. yeah, let me know how you get on. <laughs> I'm curious <laughs> too, I think that's a lifelong journey um okay, so I wanted just to. As we kind of draw to a close here, I'm thinking about the people who might be listening and the, the people who are perhaps, you know, they might be within organizations that they're, they're hoping to help shift or thinking about setting something up. And I'm wondering, you know, if you were sitting having coffee with one of them and they were saying, you know, what should I be, what should I be learning? What should I be reading? What should I be thinking about? What do I need to be practicing? Whether there's anything that you would be like, ah, I would start here. Well, don't forget this. This is really important to hold on to. Whether there's any, any pearls of wisdom that you think would be supportive for people in that position.
1: I mean, I don't know much about wisdom, but it's like, I think for me, what works is really getting out into nature and really just observing uh, of really just being there with zero distractions, no phone, nothing for you know extended periods of time and just observing and just starting to read signals and patterns um, and then there are other th- i mean whatever works for you in terms of meditating, whether you know whether that's meditating, whether that's sitting under a tree or hugging a tree or you know sitting by a stream or anything that can get your mind. Uh, to quiet down. Mm. Um, And then on the more practical level, for me, definitely like learning about biomimicry, learning, you know, looking up resources. There's so much resources online. Uh, You know, biomimicry uh, 3.8, asknature.org. I mean, there's just like so much out there that so many uh, TED Talks and and YouTube videos and things. So just kind of diving slightly into, into that. Um, will definitely open up your eyes to to a lot of what's going on around you. Um, going into nature retreat, like you know, doing nature retreats, like that's been really helpful for me. Um, and uh, on the organization level, like this, uh, the book by um, uh, Frederic Laloux, uh, Re- uh, reinventing organizations.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, where where they introduced this idea of teal uh, organizations, all of that. That was. Such a like, yeah, really of a tremendous help. Um, yeah, so much. Yeah. Out
0: there. I have to put, I have to second that one Frederick Lelou's Reinventing Organizations. Yeah, what a Bible! What an amazing source yeah. of inspiration and wisdom.
1: The book called Biomimicry, you know, that was written like almost 20 years ago by Janine Benyus, like, is still so relevant. Um, I mean, yeah. I have uh, one of my favorite authors uh, daniel pinchbeck wrote a book called how soon is now i mean there's just i don't know like just so many so many things so m- so much out there just be curious and just get started somewhere
0: i think that's just the most amazing call to action um to be reminded to to not get too stuck to not wait for permission do yeah. not
1: wait for permission at all (laughs) no one's going to give you permission to do the things that need to be done because i mean those in the figures of authority or those with the authority are basically the system and you know are the ones who are perpetuating the system that we're in so we cannot ask permission to yeah to change that system
0: yeah yeah (laughs) beautiful well on that on that call for revolutionary, non-permissive action. I just want to say a huge, huge thanks, Adib. And um, yeah, as you will have will have hopefully heard, this podcast is, is not only about kind of spreading the wisdom, spreading the ideas, but also about celebrating and being grateful for all of the actions that people like yourselves have taken to go against the grain, to... Not ask permission to to not wait and to move ahead and find ways to put life at the center of uh, of how we work and how we act and how we make our livelihoods. So thank you, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Hannah, for this uh, riveting conversation. It's always whenever I you know whatever I'm talking to, you, it's just like lots of things that I have to note down as soon as we finish this and like new <laughs> ideas that come out and new connections that get made. So. So it's always a, always a pleasure and an inspiration. Mm,
0: I'm very glad to hear it. What a wonderful conversation. As Adeeb said, discussing these topics is such a pleasure and I feel so grateful to have the chance to do it with such fascinating, creative and innovative people. Thank you so much, Adeeb, for sharing your journey and your learnings with us. We covered a huge amount of territory in that conversation, but I'd love to highlight a few key things that I am definitely taking away with me. Firstly, the incredible richness, wisdom and value of the work of biomimicry in helping us to, in Adib and Janine Benyus's words, quieten our human cleverness so that we can access an even higher level of intelligence that is all around us if we can just develop the skills to notice it. Secondly, that a big part of this work of regeneration is about humility, about trust, and about letting go. But that this is not a passive pursuit. Indeed, there is a lot of work to do, but that the nature of this work is less about knowing the answers and figuring things out, as it is about preparing the right conditions so that the rest that we don't yet know can emerge. Thirdly, I heard a massive encouragement from Adib to not wait, to not wait for permission from institutions that are enmeshed in a system that we're trying to change, to not wait to have all the answers or to be perfect to not wait to fit into some neat, easily understandable box, to recognize that embracing interconnectedness means also embracing a degree of messiness. So we have to learn to put our inner perfectionists to one side. Fourth, I'm taking away huge comfort in the idea that we are in the blaze, and that although that is hot, and disruptive, and destructive, and scary, that in nature, after the blaze, comes something new, often something more resilient and more rich than what was there before, that some seeds can only be released in a fire. Fifth, I'm reflecting on what Adib has given to his ecosystem, his colleagues, and his community through his work. But also, what his work has given him a way to stay connected to his country, to come out the other side of burnout, to retain a sense of rootedness despite the huge turmoil around him. And finally, I'm reflecting on how Adib's work reflects a longer term relationship with time. I'm reading A Good Ancestor by Roman Krasnarich at the moment. And in it, he talks about our acorn brains, the human ability to think long term and to plan and how this ability, whilst unique and beautiful, is underdeveloped in us now and that we need to cultivate and strengthen that ability to think long term if we are to have a more resilient future and to be good ancestors to future generations. Adib's work in reforestation and exploring how we can create habitats where people and the more than human world can co-thrive feels like a beautiful example to me of work that is genuinely on a longer term time horizon and that's something that to me feels really key to what it means to be regenerative. I really hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did thank you all so much for being here